0: This morning, I would like to start with a text that is is quite blunt. The text that I want us to study this morning. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it is coarse, but it is the sort of language that you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear during one of my lessons. But it's the text I want us to start with this morning. Uh, It comes from Jeremiah 3. So depending upon your version... There is a couple of key words that are going to read a little bit differently in what you're looking at in the Bible in your lap and your hands versus what I have on the screen and what I read because there's a couple of key words that I've found um, gentler synonyms for for the sake of some of the younger years in our audience. Uh, But for those of you who are looking at your version there in your hands, you'll be able to see where the text is even more striking. It's going to be a striking text even on the screen as I read it. But it is even more um, strong uh, without those those alternate synonyms in place. So Jeremiah chapter 3, I want you to try to feel the the weight and the impact of this text. Jeremiah 3 starting in verse 6 and reading down through verse 9. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah. Have you seen what she did? That faithless one Israel. How she went up on every high hill. And under every green tree. And here's where the variations may come. And there played the harlot. And I thought after she has done all of this. She will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, and she too went and played the harlot. And because she took her harlotry lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. So shocking text, especially uh, right out of the gate with a Sunday morning sermon. But what God is talking about there when he says that Israel went up on every high hill and under every green tree and polluted the land, Judah did, by committing adultery with stone and tree, as you've probably already sorted out, is idolatry. It's the worship of, of idols on high places and in sacred spots. And all throughout the Old Testament and Israel's. Uh, dalliances with idolatry, you see mention of these high places. You find the phrase startlingly, even sickeningly, often. Some 60 to 90 times, depending upon what version you're reading. And it's most often referring to these places of worship. It's not just some, some elevated place. So the high places, these cultic sites for for pagan worship, they were a massive problem for Israel and Judah. So what exactly were these high places? Well, as I say, places of worship, but you'd have some place such as the remains of this one in Dan. I tried to find a good view that would show you the elevation, but perhaps you can tell back off in this corner that you've got some mountains that you can see uh, straight ahead of you in the distance. This is the remains of, of the holy site in Dan. If you're looking closely, you might note that the condition of those stones look much more recent than the time we're talking about here. That's because it was rebuilt upon several times. Um, This stone structure, if you can make out some of what it looks like with the points here on each of the corner, it's representing for you where the altar would have stood. It's just a simple model to stand in place of it. But this is one such location there in Dan. This is Tel Dan um, up in the northern part. So you'd have altars that would be set up on these elevated places. You'd have standing stones or carved wooden beams or some other symbols of these false gods that you would place all around. Um, when the children of Israel came in, Gezer, Petra, all sorts of other places had their high places. Worship had been going on in those locations for centuries. And Israel was supposed to come in and dispatch all of that. But they didn't. They left a lot of those places standing and as you would imagine, eventually began to use them. And initially, they used those alternate locations for the worship of God. And then they kind of had a a hybrid Yahweh-Baal sort of system going on that over time lost more and more of the Yahweh component and and lent itself more and more towards the the pantheon of of, of Baalism. Eventually, it becomes so bad, Jeremiah says, it's as if you go up to every high hill and every green tree. So that's what these places are. What exactly is the problem with them? Well, first of all, as we've mentioned, these sites were used primarily for pagan worship. That's what they had been used for, and that's what Israel itself would come to use them for. And that's why, as God is is giving commandments to Israel through Moses, as they're preparing to enter the promised land, he tells them, I want you to get rid of all of these places. Eradicate all of these high places and their shrines. So in Numbers 33, verses 51 and 52, God says, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you shall drive out all of the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all of their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. So God says, I'm going to remove this people from before you, but I want you to remove every last vestige of of their pagan worship systems. Get rid of them entirely. So every, every shrine, every emblem, every element, what have you, in every location, you wipe it from the ground. So he's wanting to create a holy land in which his people can be holy. And the reasons why God wants them to start off by getting rid of all of these places are, are pretty obvious. First of all, because the, those abominations cannot remain present in a land that's supposed to be sacred and set apart. They're in the midst of a people who are supposed to be sacred and set apart. And then also, because God knows good and well what the children of Israel are going to do if they leave those things around, they're going to feel a strong temptation to start using those places for their own worship as well. Here they are, they're close, they're they're lavishly prepared, they look like just the perfect place to worship. They've even got familiar elements that we're used to from our time back in Egypt. You know, all this is perfectly set up, let's use these places. And Yahweh says, you'll worship me in Jerusalem. So one site that God's going to set up for his people to come in unified worship, he doesn't want them having all these different sites dividing God's people into their different areas. So God says to this second Exodus generation that's preparing to enter into the land in Deuteronomy 12 and verse two. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. That's that language that we saw initially. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So Israel is supposed to go in. They're supposed to completely wipe out the high places, all of the pagan shrines and worship in the tabernacle while seeking the place that God chooses for them. In verse 10, God's going to elaborate. He says, when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. So God makes it really clear to Israel. You're not going to use a variety of different places. You're going to use one place as a unified people. And and, and it's one place that I'm going to pick your God. I'm going to pick this place. That's where you're going to come. So you're not all over the place, worshiping however you like every man doing what is right in his own eyes, as is notable in the judges era. I'm going to give you a single high place the Mount of Zion, and you'll worship me in my way, in my place, as my people, makes it really clear, you're not going to worship me the way pagans worship their false gods, because I am nothing like them. And yet a lot of these high places, they survive the initial conquest of Canaan. They survive the centuries of the judges' era. They survive into the united and divided monarchies. And almost immediately, God's people start to use them. And the most unexpected Israelites will use them also, including even Solomon, who, of course, you know, builds God's true high place, his true temple. In 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So, if you're keeping your geography in mind, that's the Mount of Olives. So, try picturing Solomon stepping out of the temple that he built for Molech and being able to look across the way and on down to the temple that he built for Yahweh. It's just staggering. And yet all throughout Old Testament history, that's pretty indicative of Israel's problem. That kind of trying to keep uh, one foot in one spot and one foot in the other. Trying to to be in in both places at the same time and worship both gods at the same time. And this is what the prophets are talking about when they lament the high places. And and, and maybe you even go about it like Jeroboam did. And you use Dan and, and Bethel as high places to worship Yahweh. Say, here, you've got these two places, let's go there instead. Worship God still, but you worship him there. Well, even that's a violation of the law God gave them. And then before too long, they start worshiping the pagan deities that had always been worshiped at those locations. Because in that ancient way of thinking, gods were attached to a particular kind of location. And that's the God that's always been in this area. And things aren't really going too well for me right now, you know, because you're disobeying Yahweh. So I'm going to worship this false God here as I'm living in his land, and maybe he'll bless me. And that just goes on to be Israel's history for a long, long time. Israel was supposed to make all of those high places barely even a faint memory. But they let them live and fester, and they're just a constant snare. When you read through the book of Kings, this particular subject is one of the main points. I'd like to show you what I mean. Uh, if you want to start off in 1 Kings 15, I'm going to have all of these on the, on the screen as well, but you won't have to turn too far if you want to follow along. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 15, I want you to see how the prophet who wrote this book focuses in on, on these high places as one of the issues for the people of God. So in 1 Kings 15, we're in the reign of Asa. And the author is talking about his efforts to bring about reform. So in chapter 15 and verse 9 and following, it says, In the 20th year of Jeroboam king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom, I think. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David, his father, had done. And he's going to list all the good things that Asa began to do. He says, he put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Mayaka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. So Asa does a great deal of good. His reign in, in general review is a good one. But of all things to note, the author makes sure to mention the high places are left intact. In chapter 22, when you come to the reign of Jehoshaphat, you've got another king who's trying to lead the people towards the worship of Yahweh. And you've got the same thing when we start in verse Forty-three. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. That's good. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And yet the high places were not taken away and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on them. In um, second Kings for just a minute, in chapter 12, with one of the, the great reforming kings, Jehoash, you've got the same refrain. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continue to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. And just over and over and over again with Amaziah, with Uzziah, with Jotham, constantly. Of the kings that devote themselves to the Lord, the high places are left alone. And you get to wondering, well, why? If you've got all of these kings who are living pleasing lives before the Lord, they're enacting all sorts of reform. Why are the high places left again and again and again May I suggest to you, the author is pointing out that that all of of the things these kings could get done, that with all the things they could get done, this edict to deal with these high places was exceptionally difficult to enact. So for various reasons, um, like the one that we talked about or alluded to at least a moment ago, they, they were an extreme problem. One reason being they were convenient. They're right there. They're ready to be used. They're known for being used to this purpose. And the children of Israel are just drawn to wanting to go instead of having to go all the way down to Jerusalem, make these different pilgrimages back and forth. Here is this site. It's right here. It's ready. And I can go more often if it's really close. Just all the different kind of practical reasons you can imagine. They become beloved and used by the people. And it seems every single king struggles to get this done. That has a lot to do with with why in the Old Testament one generation will be doing well and then from it a generation will rise up that does not know the Lord. That's because this stuff is just always right there in front of their faces. It's not as if you eradicate these false gods from the land entirely and then within a generation everybody just completely starts looking outside of their borders for a God to worship and they bring them all rushing right back in. It's, It's staying there. It's getting eradicated to a large percent sometimes, but there's always part of it that's staying right there. So whether you worshipped God, the Lord, or you worshipped Baal or whoever, these sites are also right there for you to use too. And so a king could come in, he could turn the country into a people of this or that God, but the site of worship and sometimes even the acts of worship, they'd stay the same. So you just have a variety of problems. Maybe you say you 're worshiping God, but you 're not worshiping Him in his place in his way, and then maybe you start to welcome in some of these other gods, and then I mean, everybody else around you has a pantheon. why can 't you so it 's not as if Yahweh has to go so Baal can come in, but Yahweh's the God that 's brought you through all of those those battles, so he 's the god of war, and baal 's the the god of prosperity, so in times of war, we serve Yahweh, and in times of peace, we serve Baal. And just a mishmash of of whatever you like. So 2 Kings 16, if you'd like to turn there. 2 Kings 16 says that when Ahaz finally ascends to the throne of Judah, something happens. 2 Kings 16. Let's start reading for a little while in verse 2. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, as his father, David, had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So the previous generation of God's people had not obeyed him and removed those high places. And Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash could go on without it really causing them a problem with their Yahweh worship, but it became a huge problem for Ahaz. So you've got several righteous kings, That by and large do what's right before the Lord. But they don't get rid of those high places. And it doesn't quite cause them a problem. But look who it does give trouble. And that's Ahaz as you come on down the line. He decides he's just going to forget about worshiping Yahweh. He's going to serve every pagan deity to his heart's content. And he's going to be one of the worst kings Judah ever has. So why go through all of this? What's the takeaway with this particular study? When there are things that are not right, that perhaps we stop doing, but we don't completely remove them from our lives, you mostly get a handle on it, but maybe not entirely. You don't eradicate that sin. Maybe you are ultimately able to keep it in check long enough that you finally conquer it and you put it away and you are not eternally, personally affected by it. But during all of those years, as that sin is allowed to keep breathing, others are. And especially if you're a parent, your spouse and your children are. So that's how this thing kind of rolls with Israel. You've got one generation that starts to... To climb up and do a little bit better. But they don't get rid of of this anchor pulling them down. And then the next generation is pulled down by that. So because we haven't fully removed whatever that evil thing may be from our lives. And with our children seeing it day in and day out. and, And not to mention living in a generation that just wants to get as close to sin as it possibly can. And, once, and, and, and are always pulled and tempted to look just like the world so that they can be accepted. They are primed as ever, as any generation ever has been, and susceptible to be taken under by sin and its temptation. And when you and I stop short and draw a line that is not quite an abolishment of this or that thing, that God says have nothing to do with, then our kids may draw a line that's not exactly in the same place ours was. It's a little bit further out. That's much closer smack dab in the middle, eventually, of stuff they ought not have anything to do with. The same way Ahaz does. Those before him had drawn the line much closer to what was right. His line isn't anywhere near theirs. And then, of course, sometimes you don't draw a line at all. That's why God says, when you get into this land, you've got to wipe all of these things out. You've got to make sure they're completely gone, because if you leave, then they're always going to be a problem for you. And maybe you can ignore it. Maybe, you know, it's up there and it's evil and you don't go anywhere near it. But the generation after you is going to be curious about that place that they've never been able to have anything to do with. And they're going to want to start exploring it and they're going to get sucked into all of this. And that's exactly what happens. So Micah, who's a contemporary of Isaiah in Micah one, verse three, he says, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So this is Micah's picture of God's wrath coming down and stomping on all of these high places, crushing underfoot all of the shrines in a judgment of Jacob and Israel. And repeatedly, or Judah and Israel, excuse me, repeatedly, the Old Testament prophets were warning Israel about this. That's Micah in the 8th century. Jeremiah, a few centuries later, says the same sort of thing about God coming in judgment. He's almost killed for it. Another prophet at the same time, though, uh, prophesies the same morning, and they kill him, Uriah. So what Israel is supposed to be never turns out. And these high places are why. It's not until the reign of Hezekiah and second Kings 18 that these things are finally removed. If you'd like to turn over there, I'd like to read a few verses. Second Kings 18. And again, it'll also be up above you. In chapter 18, verse 2, speaking of Hezekiah, he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and if you've been paying attention, as you've read through the book of Kings, that's just a line you can almost trip over because you're not expecting to read that. You're not expecting anybody to do that because you're always waiting for at the end. He did really well, but the high places stayed and right off the bat. He did really well. He got rid of the high places. And then it's just it's interesting from there. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. If you remember that? For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nahushtan. So they turned that into an idol. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. So you've got a king that finally comes in and addresses the issues of these high places. And you'd think, now we're really going to start going somewhere. We're really going to see the people of God fulfill God's part for them. The trouble is, Hezekiah has a son, the way kings do. And Manasseh undoes everything his father did. So in 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. We've just swung from the highest point we've seen in the book yet all the way back to the other side. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger and the carved image of Asherah that he made. He said in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I give to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So it's just, it's kind of an emotional roller coaster because you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for this glimpse of hope. And and you get it and it's taken away. So everything that his father labored to rid the nation of and even succeeded, Manasseh comes back in and just rebuilds it. This is what happens often. When I don't address a sin early, when I finally do get around to attempting to address it, one, it's it's much harder. So once I've given sin a, a foothold in my life or in my family, or if sin has taken a foothold in, in the congregation I'm a part of, and then I or, or my family or, or the congregation I'm a part of try to address the problem And be free of it. When for so long that sin has been allowed to stand. Whatever it may be. And maybe someone comes along and says, listen, we've got to straighten up. So for a while you do. But you've always got to watch extra careful. Because at some point that voice is no longer going to be there. What was holding back the waters is going to be removed at some point. And it's really easy to let everything back in. And revert back to the way that things were. And just go back to how things used to be. Hezekiah removes the high places. He'd been waiting to read that. But they've been there for centuries. And his son puts them right back. Now it's remarkable that later on Manasseh repents as he's in bondage in Assyria. 2 Chronicles 33 talks about how God allows him to return to the promised land. And what he does there is incredible. He tries to remove the high places that he wants rebuilt. But the text says the people don't go along with it. They've been there for so long. So they still use the high places. They just agree that they're going to use them for the worship of God. So Manasseh comes in. He tries to undo every bit of evil that he's previously done. And he cannot do it. Because they remember how he was. They remember how things were. They've gotten used to that sin around them. And all those high places eventually just return to to pagan usage. And and, and God comes as he promised he would. And it's the Assyrian army that he uses to tread all over those high places there in that land. Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, God says, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. I'm going to get rid of them once and for all so as i said the text is pretty blunt it's 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 stark language it's, it's 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 stark action that's taking place in this text but i want to make one simple plain point and that is perhaps there's some sin in your life or maybe a variety of different kinds of sins that are allowed to creep up sins of of of, of attitude and speech and Stuff that you, you say in heated moments or the way you allow this emotion or that to get the best of you and don't operate with the pa- the patience and the peace and the righteousness of God. Uh, or, or temptations you face at work and give in to from time to time. A variety of different things that are just poking up their heads. It doesn't necessarily have to be. One sin that's always just kind of bobbing back up like the high places were. It can be a variety of little sins that for a while you tamp down and keep out of your life. And then your faith weakens and some of those things start to creep back up before you push them back down again and back and forth and back and forth it goes. So perhaps there is sin or, 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 or uh, sin, uh, sin that you mostly put away but not entirely. And every now and then it rears its head again and you go after that versus remaining loyal to God. The point of all of this, by looking at what happens when those representations of sin are not wiped out from your presence. The point of all of this is that in your life, you've got to tear down the high places. Because if you don't wipe those out, one day God's going to do exactly what he did with Israel and Judah. He's going to wipe them out. He's going to stamp on those high places and stamp on those sins and judgment. He brings a sword to Judah and gets the job done. He'll bring us to a lake of fire and brimstone and get the job done. So the legacy of these kings was whether or not they finally dispatched those high places that are always left to linger and fester. You get to read this this summary of their life at the end. They did really well, but they left the high places. And then the generation after falls. What's my legacy going to be? Is it going to be that those, those same old temptations and those same old struggles just kept popping up and popping up? And maybe, maybe I finally escaped them, but I kept them around long enough that my kids, those three boys, watched their dad and learned something they shouldn't have learned, and it pulls them down. What's my legacy going to be? And I did well in all of this and all of that, but this glaring problem was never dealt with. These different things here and there, they were never sm- struck down completely. So when we don't correct these problems, it's important to understand, uh, I'm not the only one who's going to suffer because of that. My children are going to suffer for that. My influence upon them, my influence upon others, just in general, those with those negative things, if they're never truly corrected, that's going to affect people. It's going to make it easier for them to do, to do all, to, to not do all that, that God's word says. Because of things that that, that that I should have taken care of and didn't. And maybe I've got this temptation that, that, that meddles me from time to time. But that's as far as I go. But maybe my kids are going to have their temptation that they struggle with. And they're going to add mine into the mix. And now that's as far as they go. And we're getting further and further away. When we ought to be purifying ourselves and clinging tightly to our Lord. So I think there's a, a very affecting lesson in the high places of ancient Israel and Judah. And if you've got sin in your life that needs to be removed, please understand today is the day to do it. Don't give it any more time to ruin your life and threaten your eternity and don't allow it any more opportunity to influence those around you that you love. Um, I know that we would love to be of any help that we can to anyone here to help correct sin. If you're a Christian struggling with something that you want to stamp out, any number of people here who would love to, to study with you about that together so that we can encourage each other against the different sins that we struggle with. And then certainly we'd love to pray with you this morning, this week, whenever. Or if you're not a child of God and you need to stamp out sin entirely and be baptized into Christ and have his blood wash your sins away. If that's something you've been, put off, been putting off, it's time to do what's right. And not allow those high places to remain any longer. So I hope we'll all think quite seriously about whether God views us as fully and totally obeying Him, or if we still have some high places to eradicate and corrections to make. And if we can be encouragement or of use to anybody and serve you and help you to, to stamp out the high places in your life, please let us know how we can do so while we stand and say.